Welcome to Head and Neck Cancer Update. This is medical oncologist, Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Marshall Posner for his perspective on where we are and where we're heading in this field. And to begin, he provided an overview. The major finding in the last several years has been the dichotomization or the splitting of head and neck cancer into HPV-positive and HPV-negative cancer. And I think what we're seeing is a very profound change in our understanding of how to treat this disease based on this prognostic indicator. As you can see, all of the studies that were done in ASCO, of all of them, many of them focused on differences between HPV-positive disease and responsiveness to therapy versus HPV-negative disease. Unfortunately, we still haven't figured out how to define HPV-positive, although we're getting closer to being able to have a very reliable diagnostic test. Certainly, a poor man's test is a P16 immunohistochemistry, and I think one of the more important findings in the last year is that there are now criteria for P16 positivity that help us identify those patients who are most likely to be HPV-positive. In terms of the clinical implications, the one thing that's kind of come across to me is the issue of prognosis. Can you talk a little bit about that and whether there's any other implications other than just the fact that it seems to have a better prognosis? Yes, there's a substantial predictive value to HPV positivity, which goes hand in hand with prognosis. And that predictive value is that HPV positive tumors respond better to just about any therapy that's applied to them. It doesn't give us the ability to choose a specific therapy based on HPV positivity as a primary diagnosis, but given the context of the patient, the extent of disease, the comorbidities, we can define a therapy that has a higher likelihood than just about any other therapy in an HPV negative person to have a responsiveness and a positive outcome. Any thoughts or hints about why the tumors respond differently to treatment? Well, it'd be pure speculation from a person who's not a molecular biologist, but from a, just an observational point, and I have to say that I do have some background in virology. A lot of my research has been in different forms of virally caused disease. HPV affects normal cells by essentially causing the degradation of active proteins in the cell nucleus and cytoplasm. So the sequestration and degradation of P53 and of RB have a very important and direct effect on the ability of cancer cells to survive. And I think what happens is that with radiation and chemotherapy specifically, the tumors and particularly the viral protein expression may be turned down and it may be turned down sufficiently enough for a larger fraction of cells to die from the synergistic effect of P53 being available and RB being activated, as well as the anti-cancer effects of the chemotherapy and radiation. So I think that's a lot of what might be happening here. So let's go through the cases you brought here today, beginning with your 72-year-old man. So this is a 72-year-old retired male executive. He noted a lump in his right neck. As an executive, he has very active medical care, went right to his internist, and eventually, within a few weeks, had a CAT scan and an evaluation. He's asymptomatic, he's never smoked, has a glass of wine weekend nights, and has no exposures through his employment or hobbies, and aside from atrial fibrillation, no significant comorbidities. 
The CT revealed a base of tongue mass and a pathologic lymph node, and an FNA showed this to be squamous cell carcinoma, which was P16 positive and HPV16 positive. What's the difference between P16 and HPV16? P16 is a protein that is important in the regulation of RB, a mitogenic signaling protein in human cells. RB phosphorylation inactivates RB and leads to mitogenesis. P16 inhibits RB function and inhibits RB phosphorylation. In non-HPV16 or 18 or HPV-related cancers, P16 is inactivated in almost 85 to 90% of those tumors, either through mutation, deletion, methylation, or some form of translocation. So what you find is that P16 inactivation is a hallmark of HPV-negative disease, while RB inactivation is a hallmark of HPV-positive disease, and P16 is upregulated in response to that RB dysregulation. So high-level P16 expression is seen almost uniformly in all HPV-16-positive tumors. And these assays are done by IHC? P16 is done by IHC. HPV16 or 18 or detection has to be done through molecular techniques at the moment. There are no good antibodies to the HPV proteins that can be used, and so you have to use PCR or in situ hybridization or RT-PCR. So are these assays commonly available? Are they considered routine that should be done? They're actually commonly available, although the reliability in outside laboratories is questionable. Is it recommended that the assays be done in this kind of situation? The NCCN does recommend that they be done, but they provide no guidance on how to use them. This is a very significant problem. We use them all the time in judging how to treat patients, and we will treat a patient with HPV-negative disease much more aggressively than we would a patient with HPV-positive disease. What fraction of non-smokers are HPV-positive? What fraction of smokers with head and neck cancer are HPV-positive? In our practice, and it's going to vary from region to region depending on the level of smoking in the environment, or at least in the region, in our region, in oropharynx, because that's where HPV occurs, not in oral cavity, not in the larynx or hypopharynx, but in the oropharynx, about 90% of non-smokers are going to be HPV positive, and about 40 to 50% of smokers will be HPV positive. Hmm. Okay, why don't we continue on with the case? So the PET scan shows a tumor in the lateral portion of the base of tongue, not the tonsil, and a right lymph node adjacent to, but within the neck at level two. I'd like to point out a couple of things about the patient. From the point of view of smoking and drinking, he's a classic person who would be expected to have HPV-positive disease. While the average age of an HPV-positive individual is going to be in the low 50s, he's 72, and I think age is not a criteria for determining the patient is HPV-positive or not. I've seen plenty of people in their 70s and 80s who are HPV-positive. And it does have an impact in making some decisions on our part for therapy. So how would you have managed this patient if the tumor were HPV negative, And how would the prognosis contrast? Well, this is a stage 3 squamous cell carcinoma. I think the likelihood of curing a patient like this with an HPV negative disease with chemoradiotherapy or with radiotherapy alone is on the order of 60%. 
because it's low volume disease. And I would treat a patient like this with induction chemotherapy followed by chemo radiotherapy for potential cure. It could be argued that chemo radiotherapy is sufficient, and a patient like this with chemo radiotherapy might have a 70 or 80% likelihood of cure, but I don't think that those are really the numbers that we see. And I think the long-term numbers from the RTOG for all comers look to be around 50% progression-free survival for HPV negative. And in our own studies, they're fairly low. So these patients are at risk for recurrence, local regional recurrence, and second primaries. And I think the chemo radiotherapy and the chemotherapy help them. And what number, I don't know whether this man asked you this question specifically, but what number would you have given him in terms of the chance of being cured? With an HPV-positive disease and tumor of this magnitude, I would offer him the likelihood of anywhere from 90 to 95%. And what's this man's current situation? He's about nine months out from the start of therapy. He's had his stomach tube removed. We put a stomach tube in all our patients that are getting chemoradiotherapy to this extensive a field. He's eating normally and is enjoying a full life. He's actually going fishing in Florida this week. Hmm. That sounds good. You mentioned that if the tumor were HPV negative, you would have used induction chemo. Can you talk about in what situations you're using that modality and what's come out in terms of that strategy in terms of clinical research recently? I know there was some data at ASCO. Yes. Well, I think the prognosis of HPV negative disease is so grim that I generally try to be as aggressive as possible. So in patients with stage 3 larynx or hypopharynx, or stage three base of tongue tumors that are HPV negative, I consider induction chemotherapy depending on the performance status and health of the patient. I think induction chemotherapy can sterilize systemic disease and improve local regional control in patients with these diseases, and that's the main mode of exit for most of these patients. I also think, and I think the data will come out in time, that induction chemotherapy results in a better functional outcome for patients because it reduces the tumor size prior to radiation or chemoradiotherapy, improves healing of the area, and reduces the scarring and fibrosis that might occur if chemoradiotherapy were the primary treatment for those patients. I think some of that data is obvious from the 9111 larynx preservation trial where induction chemotherapy patients ended up with better outcomes than those patients who got chemo RT up front. And the survival, the non-cancer cause of death in the chemo RT patients is probably due to aspiration pneumonia and other problems related to scarring and fibrosis from radiation that was not present in the induction group. So I think you see a an improvement overall in functional outcome in patients who get induction chemotherapy. What are the trials that are going on right now, and what's going on in terms of trying to integrate biologics into this setting? There are a number of trials looking at EGFR receptors, but these are being primarily targeted for HPV-negative disease because of the excellent outcome in HPV-positive disease. I think the data on EGF receptor and targeting and HPV-positive disease is far too complex to have been answered by the trials that we have retrospective data on. The SPECTRUM trials suggested that HPV-positive disease did not respond as well to the addition of panitumumab to chemotherapy, but I think the selection of patients as HPV-positive in that disease was flawed, and I don't think that the data is useful. On the other hand, if one looks at the Bonner trial, where 
almost 60 to 70% of the oropharyngeal cases were probably HPV positive. We see that EGFR receptor addition to radiation resulted in a significant improvement in survival. So we have a very mixed picture about EGFR targeting and HPV positive disease. I think we can safely say that HPV negative disease has a significant response to EGFR receptor targeting as manifested by the extreme trial and some of the subset analyses in the other EGFR receptor trials that we've seen using antibodies specifically. Unfortunately, the small molecule inhibitors have not proven to be as effective, and there's a lot of data that's negative with regard to EGFR inhibition with small molecule inhibitors. What about second-generation EGFR TKIs like afatinib? Afatinib is shown to be quite active. These second-generation drugs look very interesting, and the fact that afatinib in randomized trials look to be equivalent to cetuximab is very encouraging. I think it's a major benefit to patients to have a therapy that doesn't require that they sit in a chair and receive chemotherapy weekly for months on end, and I think afatinib offers patients the availability of a drug that's a take-home medication that's far less in the way of invasiveness of chemotherapy. And I would hope that the randomized trials will show that it is at least as effective as cetuximab. And I think it'll be very interesting to see. Also, the value of adjuvant therapy with uh, EGFR receptor antagonists has never really been explored well. For some reason, the pharmaceutical firms chose not to pursue that indication with the antibodies. And I'm glad to see that that indication is being pursued with afatinib in the randomized trial investigating postoperative chemoradiotherapy followed by a randomization to afatinib versus continued follow-up. Any research concepts in terms of trials that are being discussed right now that you're excited about? I'd like to make a couple of comments about trials in general that are going on both in HPV-positive and in HPV-negative disease. First, I'd like to say that I'm very disappointed that the Radiation Therapy Oncology Group has chosen not to explore ways of reducing radiation for patients that are HPV positive. And I think the RTOG trial 1016 that's currently comparing cisplatinum plus radiation to cetuximab plus radiation is really not going to change the outcomes for patients dramatically. I think really trying to find a way to look at radiation as the single most damaging agent that we give to patients and trying to understand ways to reduce radiation, a necessary part of the therapy today, would be a better utilization of their research potential than the RTOG 1016. Unfortunately, ECOG's trial looking at reduced dose radiation was a phase two. I think we're going to learn a lot about biomarkers that predict responsiveness to induction chemotherapy and the potential for reducing radiation dose, but we're not going to change practice based on this trial, which is unfortunate. And that's simply because RTOG controls the largest fraction of patients that can be put on curative clinical trials in head and neck, and it's an unfortunate fact of life that they have not pursued chemotherapy in a very productive manner. How is intensity modulated radiation being used right now with head and neck cancer, and what do you do at your own center in this regard? Well, we use intensity modulated radiation therapy planning for all of our patients. There are patients for whom IMRT doesn't offer a great advantage, patients with bilateral nodal disease and extensive primaries, for example. So 
IMRT is not as advantageous in that group as it is in patients with lateralized lesions or with lesions, for example, of the nasopharynx, where the ability to preserve the parotids and to reduce collateral damage to normal tissues is a very important part of managing these patients. We use IMRT a lot. And again, we don't have a lot of documented evidence that it's substantially better. It's not clear that it actually results in a better outcome in terms of cure, but certainly there seems to be some improvement in saliva and salary function in patients when you can reduce the dose to the parotids. Anything that you do, any interventions to try to reduce the incidence of mucositis during combined chemoradiation? Well, right now, there are no established methods for reducing mucositis in general. We're participating in a number of trials, and there are a number of experimental studies out there that are looking towards this. We're doing a trial with an anti-IL-6 antibody that's supported by a pharmaceutical firm. There are some gene-modified lactobacilli that are being tested that secrete protective factors. And there is the keratinocyte growth factor studies that have not been pursued. I think the really unfortunate thing is that mucositis is a really tough area to do supportive care research in because it's so difficult to identify how effective a therapy is. I have to say very clearly that one of the difficulties in understanding mucositis is that most of the trials have looked at where you look for mucositis and not where it actually occurs. A patient with oropharynx cancer, larynx cancer, hypopharyngeal cancer, nodal disease has their most damaging mucositis at the base of tongue, in the larynx, and esophagus, and we don't observe those areas. What we do is we get symptomatic data, and so the use of the World Health Organization mucositis scale seems to be a very effective way of quantifying mucositis compared, for example, to the NCI criteria, which look primarily at gross evidence of mucositis in the oral cavity. So let's talk about your second patient, the 57-year-old man. Yes. So in contrast to the 72-year-old man, we have here a 57-year-old gentleman who presented to us with difficulty speaking, dysarthria, and bilateral neck masses. He'd also had some difficulty in eating and swallowing and had lost about 20 pounds of weight before he came to see us. He's not an alcoholic, but he did smoke two to three packs per day for 20 years. And as with many people, he quit 20 years ago. He has no significant comorbidities and lives a pretty rigorous life as a somewhat reclusive outdoorsman in the more rural areas of New York. An FNA and biopsy of the lymph node and the primary site, respectively, were positive for squamous cell carcinoma, and it proved to be P16 negative and HPV negative. He has extensive lymphadenopathy bilaterally in both necks. He has a submental lymph node on the right side, as well as an extensive tumor extending deep into the soft tissues of the tongue and the vollecula, and extensively out into the base of tongue, at least to the circumvallate papilla. When he sticks his tongue out, it deviates to the right, showing that he has deep muscle involvement, and he's somewhat garbled in his speech. He has some mild hemoptysis with this. So what's interesting about this gentleman is that he is fully resectable. His tumor does not surround the carotid artery. It doesn't invade any of the vertebral bodies. In fact, a total glossopharyngectomy and reconstruction could be accomplished in this patient. And 25 or 30 years ago, a surgeon might have endeavored to do this. 
biologically, this makes no sense because this tumor is highly responsive to therapy. You can get reasonable local regional control, not in something necessarily this extensive, but with aggressive disease. And furthermore, he's at high risk because of bilateral and extensive nodal disease with nodes extending down to level three and level four on the right side and level three on the left side. He's at high risk for systemic metastases. So doing a surgical resection and treating only local regional disease really not going to impact his long-term survival and will leave him with a very, very poorly functioning oral cavity, unable to eat or drink or speak even with good reconstructive techniques today. So if we were to follow the standard of care, he would be eligible for either chemoradiotherapy or sequential therapy. I would argue that this is the kind of person that wouldn't get on a, a chemoradiotherapy trial. The radiation oncologist would look at this patient and say, give him induction chemotherapy, and then we'll plan him afterwards. But he fits the criteria for bolus's platinum, and 7,000 centigrade, or the European criteria of carboplatinum plus 5-FU for three cycles during radiation therapy, or even the cetuximab data where cetuximab was given. So from a chemoradiotherapy point of view, he has three established regimens that are active. From an induction point of view, he could receive sequential therapy with TPF followed by chemoradiotherapy, and there are even some people who would consider just paleotherapy, although this man is quite robust. We treated him with TPF. He had a very, very good partial response with uh, substantial shrinkage. On physical examination, he still had some palpable lymphadenopathy in the right neck. The left neck had completely disappeared. By the completion of the first cycle, he was eating normally and had normal speech. And at the end of treatment, he had completely normal swallowing and speech and had, as I said, some residual disease in the right neck. Subsequent to this, we had a dental evaluation and management of his teeth, which is an important part of managing these patients, and he went on to get chemoradiotherapy. My practice in patients who are smoking-related cancers like this, where we don't have a complete response, is to give them more intensive chemoradiotherapy. If we look at the TPF TAX324 data, we still had a substantial number of patients who failed locally. About a quarter of patients had local regional failure compared to 5% of patients with systemic failure. And so we give these patients a more aggressive chemoradiotherapy course. And so he received a combination of weekly carboplatinum, paclitaxel, and cetuximab. And what happened? He tolerated the treatment reasonably well. We did have to reduce his carboplatinum and paclitaxel during the fifth and sixth weeks of radiation because of low platelets. He went through the seventh week, and then he is now eating and drinking well. He went tuna fishing last month and declined to come visit us for a follow-up, but he's doing well. His post-operative PET scan is completely negative, and we're following him. How did he do with the cetuximab? He had a very minimal rash, did not have any allergic reactions, did not have any diarrhea. The major problem for this patient was mucositis, and he refused pain medication and maintained his swallowing, very minimally using his tube throughout the course of therapy. He's a very much an individualist, and was very much concerned that he maintained his swallowing. He really was quite stoic about his treatment. So minimal rash, fairly extensive mucositis, 
required a fair amount of hydration in the clinic in the last weeks. And I want to point out we're very vigorous with hydration. We follow all of these patients very carefully, whether they're getting cisplatinum, carboplatinum, and paclitaxel, or a triple combination of carboplatinum, paclitaxel, and cetuximab, and we maintain close monitoring and frequent hydration to protect them. And that's IV hydration? Yes, we give them IV hydration because it's hard to get sufficient amount of saline in. When I moved to New York, we put together a calendar for the patients and for what they should do during radiation. And part of that is that they should be taking two cans of salty soup a day to maintain their vascular volume and to maintain their hydration. So we asked them to put this through the tube or to take it by mouth if they can. And we recommend chicken soup, beef broth, miso, wonton soup, anything that has salt in it that would be usable. How about Gatorade? Gatorade is totally ineffective. Actually, the best drink that's not a soup is V8 juice. It has much more sodium. Gatorade is completely sodium lacking. It's a sugar replenishment. It doesn't really provide the real volume replenishment that you need. I used to say Gatorade to the patients, and I took a very close look at the contents of Gatorade, and I think, unfortunately, it's about water hydration and sugar replenishment and not about sodium. Hmm. What do we know about panitumumab and head and neck cancer? Well, it's an effective agent. Unfortunately, it's not been shown to be effective in the light of the FDA's requirements and by the kinds of trials performed with it. We did a phase one, two with chemo RT with panitumumab and had an extraordinarily good outcome, including good management of the side effects, which we thought were pretty well controlled. That was published about two years ago. And I use it as a substitute for cetuximab in patients who are allergic to cetuximab and whom I think cetuximab or an EGFR receptor antibody would be useful. I think the data shows that it has activity. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to show better or less or equivalent activity to other agents that are already on the market. What do physicians do when they're in the sort of reaction belt geographically for cetuximab? Do they routinely start with panitumumab? I couldn't speak to that. Since I practice in the Northeast, I don't see much in the way of reactions. What do you see in this man's future, and what kinds of treatments do you see in the future for him if and when he relapses? Well, first of all, let's assume that he doesn't relapse as a start, which would be nice. I see progressive scarring and fibrosis in the oral cavity, and five to 10 years from now, vascular damage to the carotid as well as increasing difficulty with swallowing as the progressive effects of radiation, 7,000 centigrade radiation to these extensive fields impact on him. He also may have hypothyroidism and may get dental failure. The good news is we took out most of his lower teeth, so he's not going to have problems there where the primary amount of radiation was located. When you mention carotid problems, do these patients have clinically manifest at CNS vascular disease? Five to 10 years out from radiation, it should be a routine to begin looking with ultrasound at bilateral carotids because the radiation causes vascular carotid scarring, fibrosis, and calcifications. It doesn't happen in everyone, but it happens in a sufficient number of individuals that it's worth looking at and being aware of this as a potential CNS problem for patients in the future. And if he does develop progressive disease or relapse, what would you be thinking? Well, a patient who has had TPF and chemo RT is going to have 
a cancer that's not going to be terribly responsive to other drugs if you were to relapse in the near term. The majority of relapses for a patient like this will occur in the first two to three years. I think we've gotten a lot better local regional control, and so I think we have to look at five-year data for these patients for relapse. And I think I would take this patient, if he relapsed locally, depending on the size of the relapse, I would do a surgical resection and follow that with re-irradiation if feasible, with chemotherapy with the radiation fields. And if he were to relapse distantly, I would be more inclined to give him some form of palliative therapy. Now, for HPV-positive patients, I actually embark on curative therapy with relapse, particularly patients who relapse after chemoradiotherapy if they relapse outside of the radiation field. For those that relapse inside the radiation field, I consider surgery and re-irradiation, but primarily surgery for those HPV-positive patients because I think they're still potentially curable. Anything new in terms of the biology of the synergy that's seen between radiation therapy and EGFR antibodies like cetuximab? I don't think we have a good idea or understanding how that works. I know that there are a number of new agents trying to synergize with the EGFR receptor blockade to overcome both resistance and to improve outcome. I know that, for example, there are a number of molecules out there looking to inhibit CMET, whether they work or not is still a subject for study. The PI3 kinase inhibitors are also being investigated. I know there are a number of those that are out there being looked at in conjunction with the EGF receptors blockade. So I know that people are exploring this. Even the JAK-STAT inhibitors are being looked at as potential synergistic agents with EGFR receptors. So I think that's all being looked at intensively. Let's talk about your third case, a 52-year-old man. So this is a 52-year-old gentleman who has an HPV-positive tumor of the base of tongue. He has three lymph nodes in his right neck. The primary is small, which is classic for this kind of disease. It's well lateralized, and it's on the right tongue. The lymph nodes are each one and a half to two and a half centimeters in size. On CT scan, there's no evidence of ECS, but they extend from level two to level three. He has mild hypertension and is slightly overweight. He's a non-smoker. So in this case, the therapeutic options are chemoreotherapy, surgery, or sequential therapy. This patient gets radiation regardless of the surgery, and that's because when you get up to three lymph nodes in the neck, I think the risk of recurrence is much higher, and the risk of systemic disease is higher. And I think there will be papers coming out that will show this, both from large retrospective series and also from data obtained from prospective collections. So I think while surgery, if he had two lymph nodes, might be reasonable with postoperative chemo RT, I think when you get into the three lymph node area, you're really talking about patients having a higher risk of local regional recurrence and systemic recurrence, and I think you really have to give a more aggressive chemoreotherapy course. There's no evidence of ECS, but if ECS were present, I'd definitely say that you need to consider chemoreotherapy up front. These patients are going to get that anyway. From our point of view, induction chemotherapy makes some sense. This patient's a watershed kind of borderline area. I think he has a higher risk of systemic disease, so I think induction chemotherapy would help with that. I think his local regional control will be excellent with chemo RT, so I'm not sure that we're going to have much impact there. If he had matted nodes, which would demonstrate some form of extracapsular extension and some more aggressiveness of the disease, I think I would be very highly inclined to treat this patient with induction chemotherapy. Now, we have 
a clinical trial going on at Mount Sinai, which we're hoping and planning to open at several sites nationally, which will take a patient like this, give them induction chemotherapy, and if they have a complete clinical response or a good partial response, randomize that patient to reduce dose radiation plus carboplatinum cetuximab or standard dose radiation with carboplatinum alone, the prior TAX324 result. We call this trial the quarterback trial because we've reduced the induction chemotherapy 5-FU dose by 25% and the radiation dose by about 20% for these patients. This trial is a non-inferiority trial. I thought it, it was a football trial when I saw it first. Yeah. <laughs> well, we call it the quarterback trial because it's really trying to direct therapy for these patients in the future. Oh, that's why. It's not because it's, you're, you're pulling back a quarter. We're pulling back a quarter as well. But it's really about trying to figure out a way to improve the outcomes for patient by reducing the radiation dose for these patients and really establishing non-inferiority. Look, it would take 10,000 patients to establish that induction chemotherapy is better for advanced cases of HPV-positive disease. We're talking our survival rate in tax 24 for advanced cases was on the order of 80 to 85% at five years. It's going to be very hard to improve on that. You're going to have 5 to 10% of patients who are resistant no matter what, and other 10% of patients who might do better or not. And the chemo-RT data from RTOG0129 is not out far enough for a real comparison. We don't know what the actual overall survival or progression-free survival is at five years for that trial. Hopefully, we'll get that data. But from our point of view, trying to do a comparison for superiority isn't going to give us much. But doing a comparison for non-inferiority that allows us to reduce radiation would be a big benefit to patients. And this is a practice-changing trial. It gives us evidence to reduce radiation for patients with locally advanced HPV-positive disease. That sounds exciting. What would your approach have been if you were HPV-negative? I would have offered this patient induction chemotherapy, and I would have given him multi-drug chemo-RT afterwards. With cetuximab? I would have considered carboplatinum and paclitaxel or docetaxel. I don't have enough data yet to support cetuximab. If he had a poor response, I would have added cetuximab to the carboplatinum paclitaxel results. The ECOG did do a study in resectable disease giving induction chemotherapy with carboplatinum paclitaxel and cetuximab, followed by carboplatinum paclitaxel and cetuximab with the radiation. And I'm following in their footsteps in an attempt to be more aggressive for local regional control. I think that that would be a great randomized trial to do, to ask whether adding carboplatin, paclitaxel, and cetuximab to therapy would be better than cisplatinum alone. I'd like to mention one other trial I'm pretty excited about. Okay. I think the RTOG is going to do a very exciting trial in postoperative adjuvant therapy, comparing weekly docetaxel and cetuximab to cisplatinum and to docetaxel alone. And I think this is going to be a very exciting trial because their phase two data, which was larger than their phase three data for their decision regarding postoperative chemoradiotherapy, demonstrated that docetaxel plus cetuximab resulted in a substantial improvement in survival for patients based on a reduction in distant metastases. I'd really like to see a very robust participation in this kind of trial because I think this is going to answer a lot of questions for what the best therapy is for patients in the postoperative setting.